if I was preaching this text in almost any other church in Melrose for sure, and probably a majority of the churches in the greater Boston area, I would be dropping a very different sermon on you today, and probably then being chased quite angrily out of the room and banned from the pulpit ever again. That's probably what would happen. Uh, Remember, when you bring the word to bear, there is a sense in which, in the fear of God and in love for your people, you want to take the text and say the text. Here it is. There's another sense in which context matters as well. And different audiences and different people groups and different churches sin differently. They have different idols that need to be confronted and toppled for their good. And so sometimes the way that you would roll very heavily in, in one people group or setting, you would roll a, a little bit different if you were in a different people group or setting. I'll just give an example of the way that we deal with our men in the life of this church. If just north of Boston was filled with very sinfully ambitious, aggressive, harsh, violent men, our emphasis in preaching on manhood would be one thing. And we would focus on, not that we don't do this, but our focus would be, hey, we are called to love our wives and our children, live with understanding, tenderness, selflessness. We would emphasize the downs, calm down, temper down, ego down, pride down, settle down. But for the most part, that is not who the just north of Bostonian man is. We are timid and passive and lazy and abdicating, and we want to be Peter Pan and be children forever. And so we have to, in the life of our church, be careful to emphasize, hey, would you act like the hen that you are? Would you take responsibility? And we emphasize the ups. Shut up. Stop whining. Grow up. Man up. Step up. See the difference? If you were preaching in a culture that was predominantly religious Pharisees who thought they were all set with God because they're keeping the rules a little bit better than the next person, then you would preach like our friend Matt Chandler in Dallas, the home of the Jesus inoculation. If you were preaching predominantly in a culture where it was unchurched pagans who have made it an objective of theirs to break every commandment every half hour if possible, then you would preach like our friend Mark Driscoll in Seattle. The tone, the emphasis, the whole counsel of God would be there, but you would know what you have to really press on because you would know where the sinful tendencies are. Okay, so if I was preaching this in many other churches in our area today, my big idea would be, look, when Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us, he's not saying that there's no such thing as anyone ever being against him and his gospel, or that no matter what anyone says, does, believes, confesses, doesn't confess, it's all one big happy, joy, joy, Ren and Stimpy dance, and let's just have a big hug. That's not what Jesus is saying in this. That's because Scripture interprets Scripture, and we have to go to the whole counsel of the Bible to understand a single text of the Bible. And the New Testament itself is replete with warnings and urgings and stories of not compromising the apostolic gospel. One of the texts that I have used to pray for you guys is from uh, 2 Corinthians, and he says, I, I, 
I'm afraid that you would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, when I pray for that for you, I'm not afraid that you're going to do that. I'm just saying, Father, keep us with a sincere and pure devotion to you in all things. Then he says something very interesting at the second part of the text. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus than the Jesus that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one that you received, you put up with it readily enough. What's the point there? Just because someone claims to be bringing the message of Jesus and his spirit and his gospel doesn't necessarily mean that it is so. There are false gospels There are different spirits. There are counterfeit Jesuses. And it is death to a church when we fail to continue to discern between them for the good of our people. Okay, now as true as all of that is, I'm not preaching that sermon to you today. Because we sin very differently from the average church that is around here. By God's grace, this joint is filled up with people who love the gospel and love their Bible and are not afraid to read and think about theology and take seriously their convictions about the sacrament and liturgy and worship and the life of Jesus' church. We read dead people like Calvin and Luther and Augustine and Owen and Edwards. We can smell a counterfeit Jesus coming from like six blocks away. And that's a good thing. But there's also great potential danger in that because we could also become the place that becomes ugly proud and unnecessarily skeptical and kind of lives our life like this arms closed eyes squinted scowls toward anyone who is outside the walls of this church or our tribe holding others to a higher standard than Jesus did. And we could become the church that is unable to rejoice in gospel works that are happening outside of our walls and think if they don't roll exactly like we do, we're supposed to oppose them and be against them. I am desperate for us not to become that kind of a people. And that's why I'm thrilled that we have this text to press into together today. Okay, hear these words from Mark's gospel with me, and I'll pray, and we'll get into this. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Okay, let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to your word. I pray that my words would fade, that we would enjoy each other and we would enjoy you right now. And you have to come and change Matt Cruz's heart and the heart of this church. You have to do it. Please, 
Be good to us and come. Do this for your glory. Do this for our joy, I ask it. In Jesus' really strong name, I pray. Amen. Okay, who in this joint grew up Bostonian? Let me see those hands. You are the most cranky, (laughs) most defensive, most skeptical and critical, most territorial, most negative people that all these other people have ever met in their lives. Okay, you go into Dunkin' Donuts hoping that they screw up your order, right? You know that's coming. You open the bag wanting, I wanted a spork, not a fork over here. Who's the manager of this joint? I've, I've witnessed that. In the last four years, your Boston Celtics have been to two NBA finals in four years out of over 30 teams and won one of them. And you're still cranky and negative and lighting up sports radio with complaints. And you continue to tweet about the Kendrick Perkins trait. This is who you are. What's your first reaction? Always in life. Rah. In your car, with your family, with your children, with your friends, at work. I got to fight. I got to oppose. There's a woman that I work with who is 63 years old, and she's never been out of Massachusetts. Do you know that type? She's with AP up at City Hall. She calls me, Matt, this is Louise. (laughs) This requisition you sent up is all wrong, and I'm sick of it, and I'm not putting up with it anymore. I'm like afraid to go do that part of my work nowadays because I don't know what this maniac Bostonian is going to do to me. And not only are we like that, but we're also very territorial. You know that this little state has over 300 cities and towns with their own mayor and their own city hall and their own council and their own school districts. And they let you know about it, right? Malden is four square miles, but no matter what entrance you take into the city, there's this big sign that says, you're in Malden now, watch it. Settled in 1620, town in 1649, city in 1882, Malden. We were multiplying last year, and everybody who was not from around here who was interested in helping us to purchase this building would either call me or email me and say, I don't understand. I've looked at a map. The building is three miles from where you are. Why are you guys not just all moving up there? And I was like, that's because you're from somewhere else and not from around here, and zip code matters. I was at a Little League game last year, and I met a guy who had moved from Malden to Melrose. You know that these two towns border each other, right? And he was looking around like, wow, you guys got it nice up here. And I said, this isn't Maine. I can throw a ball from this park, and it will roll into Malden. We're territorial And we're skeptical and critical right away. You know this. I was talking to somebody and I said, hey, how about this weather? It's not going to snow this year. He goes, yeah, but wait till March gets here. We're going to get pounded. I can feel it. I'm like, really? You can't just enjoy? (sighs) I spoke at something called Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary this week. It was a strange and exotic universe. Everybody was smiling and happy. (laughs) Nobody, like, assaulted me or yelled at me or threatened me. 
On the ride home, I had to cut someone off on 128 just to get back into the groove. They yelled at me. I was like, hey, I needed that. You're laughing because you know this is true. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. This Bostonian way, fists up, territory is marked, critical and negative, ready to throw with anybody who even steps and threatens anything of ours. If you want to be that way with sports and politics and bad drivers, fine. You are not allowed to be that way with others who are doing Jesus' work. I want to go to the text and I want to show you that in here. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Okay, quick time out right there. Did anyone see that coming? Someone other than Jesus or one of the 12 disciples going around in Jesus' name like this, casting out demons, setting people free, announcing the coming of the kingdom of God? This is a little bit unexpected, isn't it? This whole gospel has focused only on Jesus and his 12 appointed, authorized apostles. That's it. If I had told you that today we would see Jesus or his disciples doing this kind of work, you would have said, yeah, absolutely, we've been seeing that. But this is a surprise to suddenly see someone else outside of their circle, outside of their tribe, outside of their little community, on their own, doing this work. It was a surprise to the disciples, and what do they do? Here was John's response. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Okay, very important that we see this. What is their first response when they saw, encountered, heard about another, an outsider, someone else doing Jesus' work? To stick with our frame here, they go all Bostonian. Immediately, they are negative and critical and territorial. Boom, their fists are up. Who's this joker? Who does he think he is? He's not with us. We got to shut this down. Joey, call Dino because there's some work to be done here. That John himself would respond in that kind of a way should be no surprise. I know that the end of the story, he ends up being the tender-hearted apostle of love. His letters are so sweet. That's not who he was in this story. John and his brother were the sons of thunder. If anybody had a big tattoo across their back of the disciples, it's these two. He's the one that wanted to call down fire, smoke out that Samaritan village. It makes sense that he's the one who wants to Fredo this guy. What was his response? We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. Okay, do you feel that right there? If we were studying this together, I would say, hey, what words come to mind with John's response, the disciples' response? What are the words? Proud? Defensive? Self-centered? not following us, grasping, controlling. 
jealous and possessive of the power that they had been given by Jesus. Exorcism is power, and they wanted to keep that right there all to themselves. We are the only ones authorized to do such things. He's got to get in line behind us and do it our way and under our authority. These disciples were so anxious to maintain their privilege and their honor that their first reaction was to oppose we're going to build some walls around this little movement of ours and we're going to keep this guy out. How does Jesus respond to John and the disciples' responses? Does Jesus go, boom, good work, John. We can't have some renegade apostle out there loving people, setting them free from the dominion of Satan, announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. Glad you guys quieted him down. Good job. No, Jesus' first reaction is not Bostonian at all. His impulse, his heart, his first move when he hears that someone else is doing gospel work in his name is so different. What does Jesus say? Don't stop him. Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Okay, again, I would ask you, what words come to mind in Jesus' response? Because they're different words. How about positive, hopeful, glad? How about generous? That is the default posture of Jesus' heart toward others. Now, Jesus was not afraid to oppose false teachers. We know that. He was not afraid to fight when it was necessary. He was not afraid to tell someone, stop. How many conflicts have we already seen Jesus in, in the Gospel of Mark? He had courage. But what I want us to see is that that was not his default mode when he first hears someone doing work in his name and there's fruit being born, his his impulse is generous. Come on, you guys. He's doing good work in my name. He's out there loving people and confronting evil and heralding my kingdom. Your gut instinct is supposed to be glad, hopeful, generous. If someone's working for the cause that we're working for, they can't be working against it at the same time. If someone's doing mighty works in my name in the morning, they're not going to be bad-mouthing and ripping me in the afternoon. Maybe this guy has been a little bit rash, okay? Maybe he has got ahead of himself. Maybe he's jumped the gun here. But why is the first reaction of your heart to hate on him? Why aren't you saying, I'm glad? And then Jesus drops this beautiful, proverbial one-liner on them that I am desperate for us to believe and to live out here in the life of our church. He says this, for the one who is not against us is for us. That proverb is Jesus' summary statement about the default posture of our hearts and where they need to be towards others who are doing gospel work outside of our tribe, outside of our walls. 
He did not say, unless someone is 100% with us and like us, and we 100% approve of every nuance about the, what they do and the way that they think, and they have checked in with us before they do anything, then they are against us, and we need to be against them. That's not it. He says, if they're not against us, they're for us. In other words, if there is clear evidence that someone is against me and my gospel and is a great danger for the souls of my people, fine. Oppose false shepherds when necessary. There are books that we will not have available to you because we love you, we care for you, and we're not afraid to fight when it comes to it. But don't go looking for that. Don't treat everyone who's not you right away all the time like they are that. Don't be the disciples who race to condemn and race to oppose and race to find fault. You will get there if you have to. But start with a generous spirit. If they're not against us, they're for us. Can you see how wrong the disciples' very first reaction was then in this story? Can you feel it? My boy Calvin says it beautifully. Let me just read it for you. If the disciples had been less devoted to their own glory and more anxious and desirous to promote the glory of their master, they would not have been offended when they saw his glory heightened and enlarged in another direction, they would have reckoned as a friend he who was not an open enemy. Oh, man, that is so good. Let me give you those in Matt Cruz's words. That means they should have responded like this. First of all, glad, open-handed, generous. They should have been like, hey, this is great. <clears throat> We didn't realize this was going on outside of our little 12-man crew over there. Isn't this thrilling and exciting? Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. You've come to see that? You're announcing his good news to others? You're walking in his power for the good of broken people? Yeah. We are glad about your work, even though it's, it's not tied to us. See the difference in the heart? And then how about friendly? And helpful. I love that. They should have reckoned him who was not an open enemy, a friend. This week I'm going, you know what? Why didn't disciples go, hey, do you know our story? Man, we have received so much grace from God. Do you know that Jesus has invited us to be on this inside 12-man crew? We have learned so much. We have received so much. We've been in him, with him night and day. Can we grab a cup of coffee? Can we hear about your work? How can we help you? Do you see the difference in the tone, in the orientation of the heart? If Jesus is right when he says, the one who is not against us is for us, they should have been for this guy. Okay, there is this beautiful story in the book of Acts where we see this kind of spirit on display. Generous and helpful 
And I want to make sure that we don't miss it this morning. This is the text that we read before. Boom, the gospel is exploding all over the Roman Empire, and it's just the good kind of church planning chaos, right? People just preaching the gospel all over the place. And this Jewish guy named Apollos from out of town, Alexandria, rolls in, and he starts bringing the gospel. And he is clearly a believer, and he is solid in the scriptures. He's legit. There is fruit being born in his ministry, but he's a little bit of an outsider. And he's a little bit off and immature in his theology. And he hasn't yet been taught some of the important truths that the early church had embraced, like about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then there's these two insiders over here who see him the same way that John and the disciples saw this other guy. They see him doing gospel work. And they are longer-term Christians, and they are more mature, and they are better learned. Priscilla and Aquila come across Apollos. And their response is so beautiful and so generous and so helpful and so unlike Bostonian John. Do you know what they do? They don't silence him. They don't stop him. They don't tackle him. They don't oppose him. You know what Priscilla and Aquila do? They befriend him. They say, hey, why don't you come grab a meal at our place? We can sit down and talk. Tell us about your work. Can we talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think we can be helpful to you. They serve him, and then they send him on his way, and Apollos benefits, and lost people benefit, and the church benefits, and the gospel benefits. Do you feel that right there? That is where we need to be. Now, what's amazing is how quickly we, I, am to not be that way. If ever there was a church that had no excuse to be negative, critical, territorial, Bostonian about works outside of us, especially about new and young and a little bit immature gospel works, you are in it right now. Some of you were here, a few of you. Seven years ago, Seven Mile Road, which was called Edgeworth Church, was Apollos, was this guy that was rushing off to do ministry in the Gospel of Mark. We were planting this church. We were doing some gospel work. God, in his grace, was certainly in it, and we were bearing fruit, but we were rash, we were immature. We were clueless in a lot of ways. Name the ology, theology, missiology, ecclesiology. It was a little bit of a mess. One day I ended up on the phone with Steve Tompkins from a church planning network, Acts 29. We ended up talking for like three hours, and I just said, Steve, I'm going to give you everything. Here's my life. Here's my story. Here's my sin. Here's my hopes and dreams and fears. I think this is the first soul care in the life of Seven Mile Road. And I'm planting this church. There it is. And Steve could have so easily folded his arms and responded like John and just been negative and fault-finding and questioning and skeptical. 
But instead, he acted like Christ. I remember he said, Matt, you know that little bit of dead air when you're done talking for two hours and 20 minutes, you don't know if the person has fainted or something? There was, Matt, this is great. I remember those words. And then something like, we are so excited about what you guys are doing. We are for you. How can we come alongside you and help you? Let me give you a list of books that I think would be helpful for you to read. Here's my home phone and my cell phone. Why don't you get to one of our boot camps and plug into this network and we may be able to help you as you do the work of Jesus. If Matt is not against Jesus, he's for him. Let me be generous with him. How can I help him? Do you feel that? I could say the very same thing about Paul McFeeders. The fruit of the life of this church that you are a part of is because there were people willing to be generous and helpful and say, hey, these guys are not against Jesus. Maybe they have some issues. What if we stepped in and celebrated and helped and served? That is who we need to become. Now, here's the problem. Our hearts do not naturally get to that place. We've got three strikes against us, right? Number one, we're Bostonian. Boom, we're ready to throw down right away. Who's that knucklehead? That's ridiculous. Did you see his website? What a joke. That's just who we are. Number two, we're reformed in the life of this church, which is beautiful, but it's very dangerous. And reformed churches in our circles tend to get very, it's us against them. And we're sinners. We're proud. We're jealous. We're territorial. We chase our own glory. And so we need to fight very hard to not go that way and to have a generous helpful spirit. You guys know when the Holy Spirit of God steps into your soul as a church, as an individual, and begins to, in that painful kind of way, expose your sinful tendencies, the best way for you to jump in with him is to go all out in attacking those sinful tendencies. Go to war. That's what we have had to do in the life of this church because of our tendencies to oppose and to be proud and to be critical. Do you know why we have been so active in assisting and helping and coming alongside church planning that is happening in greater Boston, Massachusetts, and New England? Do you know why? Do you know why we host quarterly church planners gatherings and we just pull people together from all kinds of networks and denominations and say, can we open our space? Can we pray with you and for you? Can we hear how we're doing? You're doing, can we encourage you? Do you know why? Do you know why our immediate response when we talked with Joey four years ago was not, Wakefield's close, we've got to stop this. But how can we love you? How can we serve your family? Come jump in our track. Now we're planning a church together. Do you know why this is happening? Do you know why I gave 100 hours of my life last calendar year to leading a pastor church planning track with men mostly who would never benefit the life of Seven Mile Road Church? Do you know why I flew to Los Angeles and came back on a red eye and flew to Orlando and spent like 50 hours getting ready to teach the best that I could to some of these church planners? Do you know why I always call back on the phone right away 
Anytime someone emails me and says, hey, I'm thinking of planting a church, looking at planting a church, want to do it in Boston, don't know what I'm doing. You can ask Jewel Robinson, Brian Page, Matt McCann, Brian Mahan, Claude Acho, Matt Tuning, Andy Rice. Do you know that our pastors get a little bit sick of me sending city messages to them saying, hey, I heard about this work that's going on over here, over there. Maybe we can step in and, and help them. Do you know why I've insisted that personally, and we, roll that way? It is not because I am a big-hearted, generous people person who likes to chit-chat on the phone, trust me. Oh, I hate chit-chat. It is not because we think we're so amazing that everyone can benefit from, from us. It's because I'm John, that's why. It's because the first impulse of my heart, when I see someone else's work being blessed, when I hear about another church getting planted in greater Boston, when I see a young guy moving some gravel who does not yet have his theological ducks in a nice, neat row, it's John. I'm from Boston. I'm negative. I'm territorial. I oppose. And I have had to repent of that and, and go overboard in the other direction just to make sure that I'm with Jesus on this one. Listen to me, there is a beautiful movement of the Spirit of God among us. Please don't miss us. I don't know if you realize this, but this church is going to fill up and go to two services and plant a bunch of churches over the next 10 years. And it's going to happen with us, and it's going to happen outside of us, and it's going to happen in Malden and Wakefield and more places that you can fit on a webpage right now. It's beautiful. We have a choice. Are we going to oppose and draw lines and be selfish and look out for us? Or are we going to be glad and helpful and generous? That's what I want for us. That's what I want for you. So I need us, I need you to look at your heart. When you hear about some, some of you guys adore our church. That's awesome. But not if it becomes my church is better than the others and they should do it the way that I do it. No. I love my church and I love Jesus' capital C church and I want to serve and help. This text ends with a mind-blowing promise for us. If we could get our hearts there. Amazing. Listen to these words. Don't fall out of your seat. If you do, get right back into it. Listen to this promise. I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Okay, feel this with me as we, as we end. Offering a cup of water in the wicked hot heat of the Middle East in that day was an act of what? It was an act of hospitality, of friendship, of helpfulness. If there is a reward held out for those by the Father who would give a little cup of water to someone because they belong to Christ, what kind of reward is held out for Seven Mile Road for you, for your family, 
if we are willing to give time and energy and money and resources and counsel and care and encouragement and people to those who belong to Christ and are doing his work. Wow. And we've already begun to see the fruit of that right here, haven't we? It is not enough for us to just be the church who was not afraid to stand up and oppose false gospels in our day. We're going to be that. We need to also be the church who humbly and gladly is for those who are not against the gospel. Unless the Spirit of God comes and does something here, those are just words, so let's ask him for his grace. Father, this is so beautiful for us that you speak to us through your word. I don't know why you've planted Seven Mile Road in the direction that you have, but I know our tendencies. I pray that you would strip us from all territorial, oppositional, proud response to those who are doing your work and are not against us. If they're for you, we want to be for them. So I pray that you would change our hearts today. I pray that instead of of being cranky and critical, we would be glad and helpful. And I pray that you would bless us because of that. Father, I ask that you would redeem tens of thousands in this state in our day. I pray that you would do it because you changed the hearts of gospel people to be for the work of the gospel broadly. Thank you for the diversity of your kingdom. Let it be something that brings joy to our hearts, not a closing to my fists. I pray that you'd come and do it. Come and do it. Amen.